Welcome to the Practical Futurist podcast, a bi-weekly show all about the near-term future with practical advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and practical futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Practical Futurist Podcast. My guest today is Ron Rock, who is the co-founder and CEO of MicroShare. Ron brings three decades of experience as a bridge builder between new technology strategies and legacy enterprises. He was most recently the founder and CEO of Knowledge Rules, an international business process management technology company that was sold to Accenture in 2010. Born and raised in Philadelphia, Ron has sat as a director on both public and private boards, and he earned a Bachelor of Science in Accounting from La Salle University in Philadelphia, PA. He has deep ties to the technology and venture capital sectors in the United States and Europe, and is active in philanthropic pursuits in his native city. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, Andrew. Now, before we get into this topic, it's probably worth hearing your own definition of the Internet of Things, IoT. I think it means many things to many people. How do you describe it? Wow, what a heavy question to start our conversation with today. You're right. IoT means a lot of things to a lot of people. And I've actually learned in the last six months that some middle management in large corporations advise me to not mention IoT in the C-suite because it's got this bad reputation. You know, IoT was first coined back in 1999 at MIT. And the idea was that we had computers running browsers and they were all talking to one another. It was the height of the dot-com. And somebody came up with this great idea that, wow, what if machines could actually talk to each other directly? What if our refrigerator and our car and our appliances at home, what if all these things could actually be interconnected? What if cars and traffic lights and ambulances were all connected? So this, it was a big idea. What happened in the subsequent two decades, a lot of money was spent on IoT and frankly, a lot of failed projects. And so... Through that, the the buzz came through, IoT, everything's going to talk to everything, to suddenly it became a bad thing to talk about in the C-suite. There were a few exceptions, things like the GE jet engine. We were able to put very expensive sensors in that engine. It generates over 100 megabytes of data a second, but the ROI made sense. We're going to keep planes in the air. So no matter what the expense, it made sense. But we never really saw IoT in its vision of 2000, the George Jetson era, we never saw all that automation come together. So I agree that IoT has got a bad rap and I'm also not using that term because one, it's confusing. And also the other thing, and we may talk about this, people then say, oh, IoT, my internet camera at home that's been hacked and all those sort of things. And it just has a really bad connotation. So I know you now talk about MicroShare as a sensor as a service company. That's, I think, a much more compelling view. But what does it actually mean? Well, and and if I can do a precursor to that, uh, I'd like to say we talk about IoT under this concept of digital twinning. Mm -hmm. Digital twin has a lot of definitions out in the marketplace as well. At the highest level, digital twinning is we're going to create a virtual replica of everything in our physical lives. Why are we going to do this? We're going to do it to drive operational efficiencies. We're going to do it to extend the quality of life. We're going to do it to find new business opportunities in the marketplace. I say extend the quality of life because data in general has gotten a bad rap lately. And so just like you're teeing up with the question, hacking our cameras, 
Time Magazine tries to scare the hell out of us every week with our baby monitor has been hacked and it's watching little and James. That's IoT, and, so it's bad. And yeah. it's cons- exactly all, all all of that. So what we don't talk about and the press doesn't talk a lot about is all the good things coming out of data. So cars that don't get into accidents in the first place are happening because of thousands of sensors talking to one another and proactively making our automobiles safer, proactively driving our healthcare system to look for cures to cancer, improve cardiac care. All these types of things are benefits of data, but we take those for granted and we try to scare everybody with data must be bad. So I think one of the first things we we tackle at MicroShare is the idea that there's a lot of really good data out there. And the more data we can collect, the more efficient we're going to be able to make operations, the more we're going to be able to create new business opportunities, new insights. And let's face it, the companies that run in a data-centric business model are the companies that are now the most valuable in the world. And legacy companies that have been around a long time are struggling and need to make that switch or risk going away. So I, th- I agree with you. Data is so powerful, but there's so much out there. Let's let's make it a little more personal for our listeners. What sort of data can you collect if you've got these sensors out? Give us a sense of what is the data we can collect and how that might be turned into insights. Sure. So it, at, at at MicroShare, there's so many different industries that we could have pursued. As an early stage company, we decided to focus on commercial real estate. And we picked commercial real estate for a few reasons. One is it's not regulated. Two, everybody has some commercial real estate. It's ubiquitous across the planet. And it's typically been underserved from a financial or technology investment perspective. So why do people care about data in commercial real estate? Well, if I'm the tenant, I want to know how many people are in my room, in my building. Increasingly, we're now working with a group of investors here in the UK they lend the money to build the skyscraper. And so I'm gonna give you $100 million, but I'm gonna build into the covenant of the bonds that I get to see the data of the occupancy in that building whenever I want. So now data has real monetary value. Absolute monetary value. And why do I do that? Because I wanna know that my tenant is potentially going to go away nine months before they typically would tell me because I'm watching real time how that building functions. So the money people are interested, the landlord is interested, the tenant is interested, and the real low-hanging fruit that we have found is that the facilities management folks, the people that clean that building, are really interested in that data. Why? Typically, large companies like here in London, Carillion, went out of business. These were big companies, quote-unquote, too big to fail. Billions of pounds running on razor-thin margins on a race to zero. What does a company like Carillion do? Among other things, they clean your office space. How do they typically clean it? They have minimum wage employees pushing a cart from point A to point B to point C every day on a schedule, regardless of utilization. So what if I could actually clean space that's being used and not clean space that isn't being used? Fun little fact, the number one complaint in North America and Europe in the workplace is dirty bathrooms. And so suddenly I start cleaning the bathrooms that are being utilized more frequently and I stop cleaning the bathrooms that for whatever reason, time of year, uh, time of day are no longer being used. So one of our large global facilities management companies, uh, a Fortune 100 company, we were in a meeting a few months ago and they said, wait a minute, Ron, I I think I get it. Occupancy equals dust. 
and, and, and that is a fundamental game changer. So now you're in a razor thin margin business, huge, big global footprint. If I can suddenly shave a few points off of my cost, whilst at the same time improving the level of service, that's a huge win for these companies. It comes back to a wellness thing. So we hear that millennials want to come to work and be inspired and, and, and meet their, their passion. But if they're working in a facility they don't like or it's dirty, then they're, they're not going to be happy. And I know that if I go to a bathroom facility, there's a tatty piece of paper that someone signed saying they've been there. But that, you're right, that's programmed. Every hour they go there, whether it needs cleaning or not. So just to break it down, the sensor basically says this space, this bathroom, this coffee area is or isn't being used. And so that data goes back to someone who can then take action on it. That's right. And typically those sensors and that data create insights. Those insights are integrated in with your Dynamics 365 accounting system or your Pegasystems business process management BPM system or SAP. And these insights then drive action. So for example, being in a bathroom and having a push button there that allows a consumer to say, hey, this bathroom needs to be cleaned. I now have a date time stamp of when they push that button, it needs to be cleaned. When the cleaning person shows up, they have a small magnet on their keychain, they tap the bottom of that sensor, and I now have a date time stamp as to when the response showed up. As we look at some of these big global facilities management contracts, the margins are so thin that they've begun crafting service level agreements, SLAs. Mm -hmm. And so now the facilities management company can actually get an increase in revenue if they meet certain service level agreements. We now provide the data that shows real-time feedback from the people using the building and the facilities management company's real-time response as to how they are servicing the facilities that they're engaged with. So then to break that down, the way you would do that today is a supervisor would have to go around with a clipboard and actually look at the tatty piece of paper to see if it had been cleaned, which means another person essentially just looking at data that's already there. So give me a sense of how you get the data back from a sensor in a bathroom into someone's dashboard. Give me a sense of how IoT, the whole sort of data flow happens. So that's a, that's a great question, Andrew. And, and the world has changed so much in the last 24 months. I talk to a lot of customers who have tried and failed expensive IoT projects. They want to beat themselves up a little bit, and I try to talk them out of that. The kind of technology, the kind of data insights that we're talking about didn't exist 24 and 36 months ago. It's brand new. So there's really two things at play. First is companies like Amazon Web Services, AWS, and Microsoft Azure, they didn't have fully robust IoT offerings just 24 months ago. So even if you were savvy enough to find the sensors and figure out how to plug them in and program them, you still had a whole infrastructure that you needed to worry about. The second piece is a whole new body of sensors in what's called LP-WAN, low power wide area network sensors. The power thing is important because if you stick a sensor there, you don't want to have to run power and cabling and ethernet to it. So it's got to be standalone. You've been doing your homework. Oh, absolutely. I'd like to think as a future, so I know what's coming next. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right, Andrew. The, the, the big breakthrough here is that we have sensors now that in many cases cost less than 15 US dollars with a five-year battery life. And at those kinds of economics, I'm going to put a sensor on every dog, cat, kid, manhole cover, soap dispenser, toilet seat, refrigerator. Mousetrap. Mousetrap. Even a better mousetrap. Yeah. So, so the, the question that you asked was architecturally, then how does this work? 
We have this new generation of low power, wide area network sensors. We call it lick and stick. You simply stick them on the wall. You scan them with apps that we've built. It automatically digitally twins that sensor. So it gives that sensor all of the details around its location that you need to make the information meaningful. That sensor broadcasts as frequently as every second, as infrequently as once every 20 minutes, and it sends information. I'm occupied, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm moving. Any one of a series of basic pieces of information. That information gets transmitted wirelessly to a gateway. A gateway, think about uh, an analogy, the router that you have at home. So it's, it's a small box that's plugged in. It has radio communications to all these sensors. But the important thing here, you don't need the existing Wi-Fi. It's its own. That's exactly right. So you've got IT people that would be the ones that would say, no, you can't do that because you can't connect to a corporate secure wireless network. And I think the, the, the solution that you've got and you're putting out in the market doesn't need IT involved. The lick and stick is literally go in, lick and stick. It then connects to this gateway through proprietary um, unlicensed spectrum and you're away. And you don't have to worry about getting IT involved. That's absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, I, I like to say that most of my customers can't spell IoT <laughs> because that's not what they bought. They bought occupancy, predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, smart parking, space utilization, optimization. They're buying business solutions around business problems. The fact that we're running an IoT network under the covers escapes them. And one of the key benefits is you don't have to get IT involved. And that's really, there, there, there's, there's a few benefits. One is obviously IT is always busy. Uh, it, 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 it creates a lot of overhead. But again, the press scares us about how people have hacked in to legacy mainframe computers through security cameras and door sensors. Our data never touches your corporate data. The data goes to that gateway via a SIM card up into the cloud and into Azure. And by the time it gets into Microsoft Azure, you've got all the power of Microsoft's security and encryption, data sovereignty, storage, all of the features that a global cloud provider brings to the table. So from that point, if you want to start ingesting that data back into your corporation, back into your accounting systems, whatever it may be, you have the ability to do that, but you're not being forced day one to marry that sensor data with your precious behind the firewall corporate data. You touched on a couple of things there, and I think the promise of IIT has been coming for a while, but we're now at an inflection point. You talk about the four things that have kind of come together. You might like to expand on those. Sure. What, why has IoT exploded in the last 24 months? Well, it's a couple of things that we've already touched on, as you said. First, the back-end infrastructure wasn't there. Azure, IBM Watson, Google to a lesser extent, AWS, they now all have basic IoT offerings. So you've got a place to store the data. That's kind of table stakes. You needed that to get started. The second thing is that you've got this growing catalog of off-the-shelf sensors. When we started in earnest tracking this LPWAN marketplace five years ago, there were three or four sensor manufacturers. There's now over 100. And success begets success. LoRa is the fastest-growing LPWAN network in the world. LoRa is long-range sensors, yeah. I believe. Yeah, so this is the radio network that is the unlicensed spectrum that connects them all together. Correct, and it was started by Semtech and IBM, 
and it, the Laura Alliance now has over 500 members. And you guys are a key in that, aren't you, which is important. One of my partners, Charles Pamal, is the chairman of the marketing committee. So you get to see the standards, so you're right up with the, the, what's happening next. We get to see not only the sensors that are available today, we know what sensors are coming on the market in the next 6, 12, and 18 months. And that's really exciting to see all the innovation. But for example, Tata has flooded India with Laura airwaves. Orange and Bwig have flooded France. Vodafone is working on Germany. British Telecom's working here. Telstra, I think, have a solution as well, yeah. Correct, and Comcast is, is uh, exploring doing it in the US. So that kind of success attracts innovation. So if you and I came up with a really cool sensor tomorrow and we said, okay, how are we gonna take it to market? We would look at Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and Zigbee and Ethernet and Laura, and we would probably pick Laura. Why? Because we have the best chance of having customers wanting to buy our sensors today in that space. And the thing here is it's the, the long range and also low power, because as you say, if you've got a sensor stuck on the wall with a battery, these things last up to five years, don't they? That's, and that's right. I don't know any device I've got that has five-year battery life. Even a clock will go flat. Um, this is the key because, as you say, if it's lick and stick, if it's up on a wall or under a desk or in a bathroom, the last thing you want is to have to go and, and maintain it and change the battery. So I think you're right. The, the sensor technology has come in leaps and bounds. The cloud technology is there. This is why I think we're at that inflection point. And, and there's also, in, in addition to the cloud technology, there's a whole new management challenge when I have 100,000 sensors in a building with 100,000 batteries. And because they're stick, they're easy to install, they're also easy to walk away. So I have to put new kind of capabilities in place, and that's one of the things my company, MicroShare, has done. We, we talk about delivering digital twinning infrastructure at scale. It's one thing to do 100 sensors in a building. It's another to do 100,000 in a campus. And so we're solving for a lot of those problems and managing those sensors at scale. So getting back to the perfect storm of why do we see IoT exploding right now? We talked about infrastructure, cloud. We talked about sensor availability through LPWAN. The third thing we've touched on a little bit earlier as well is failing business models. Looking at the way Carillion imploded, looking at what happened with WeWork recently, a lot of legacy businesses have been talking about innovation for a long time. Uh, uh, Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, innovating in legacy companies is hard. We've reached a point where you innovate or you go away. And it's a very real reality facing these companies. So we're seeing movement now in the C-suite where it's no longer okay to sit on the sidelines and wait. And frankly, a lot of this change is also being driven by activist investors, private equity firms. So we're watching this pressure. And suddenly we see companies taking action who three years ago were happy to just stay on the sidelines, consume a lot of our time. People want to talk about this stuff, but now actually pulling out a checkbook and paying for it, we're actually seeing that change now. And that leads me to the fourth component of the perfect storm. And you touched on it, Andrew, a little bit earlier. One is we have millennials coming into the workforce and they, they don't demand, they expect a very different kind of working environment because of the things like WeWork, funky new space. Andrew and I, for our listeners, don't know that we're sitting at a WeWork right now. In one of the offices, yeah. And it's really cool. You've got the exposed ceilings, you've got the hardwood floors. Are these sensors up here looking at if we're in the room or not? Sadly, no. Those sensors are just there to let us know if the room catches on fire. <laughs> they, they need some more. They need some sensors here. They do need some sensors. But it's a very cool vibe. And this is uh, you know, one of the 
one of the uh, rumors that often has had to get dispelled around WeWork, it's not all startups. Uh, WeWork in Philadelphia was our home for a few years, and on one side of me was IBM, and then the other side of me was Comcast. So even large organizations are coming into this new funky space. Well, if you're going to have space like this, you have to have sensors, understanding how it's living and breathing and being utilized to figure out how to optimize the space. One thing one of your guys was talking to me about was carbon dioxide sensors. It makes a lot of sense. If there are a lot of people in a room breathing out CO2, you get really sleepy. If you're sleepy, you're not productive. So this becomes a wellness discussion, not a sensor discussion. And if I was talking to the head of HR to say, do you want happy, productive employees? He or she is going to say yes. If you reverse engineer that, a carbon dioxide sensor could tell you what the space is like and whether you've got an issue with carbon dioxide, for example. We had a client with 800 employees on a floor. By 11 o'clock every day, they were legally drunk because of CO2. They were shocked, shocked to find. It was staggering. And think about it. These people are walking around making very serious decisions about how to drive that business. So without the data, they don't know there's a problem. And then they introduce ventilation or, or they reduce the density. They then solve a problem. People are more productive. They make more money. That's right. Why aren't people buying more? Well, and, and they are. That's that's what we talk about, the perfect storm. And the last piece on that, on that perfect storm piece is sustainability and ESG. It has become the topic in C-suite. It was the topic in Davos this year in Switzerland. Uh, Benoff, the, uh, the CEO of Salesforce.com, made the bold statement that capitalism as we know it is dead. Of course, that's a great attention-grabbing headline. But when you read it, what it means is that corporations used to define their singular pers- purpose as driving shareholder value. It's now about people and planet and shareholder value. You can't reduce your carbon footprint if you don't have the data in the first place of how your building is behaving, living and breathing. One other really interesting use case uh, is asset tracking. Could you talk us through what that might entail and, and how it helps solve problems? Sure. So, so that's another breakthrough in the industry. One of our investors is a company called Curlink. They are publicly traded on the French market. And we talk about LP WAN technology and LoRa, every gateway that is being deployed in an industrial scale is manufactured by Curlink. So they've uh, invested in us as well. We've been solid partners for a number of years. And they, together with us, started looking at indoor asset tracking. Why do we care? Uh, Royal Post has 750,000 carts they need to track across all of the UK. Hospital beds. Turns out your relationship with your hospital bed is more important than your relationship with your room. I use your hospital bed to transport you to pathology. Physical bed, yes. Exactly. And so depending on the sickness that you have, there are protocols how that hospital bed needs to be recycled before it gets redeployed. I don't know. I may send the recycling team into your room, but your bed was left down in you know, the, the uh, heart department. So tracking beds, tracking wheelchairs. I can't discharge a patient in any hospital in the United States or in the UK without taking you out in a wheelchair. If I've got available beds, I can't bring a patient in until you're discharged. Guess what people do at hospitals? They hoard wheelchairs. They hide them. Turns out maternity is one of the worst culprits of this. So now we're simply tracking where all the wheelchairs are. There's another added benefit. You're pulling up to the hospital with your pregnant 
wife and which entrance has wheelchairs available. So now I can make that information available on an app. So we're doing indoor asset tracking with wheelchairs, hospital beds, and infusion machines to start with. And this is a combination of Bluetooth and LP WAN technology. Again, something that economically wasn't feasible. In this case, even 12 months ago, the competition was products like RFID, very expensive to install. You've got to cable them together and everything. Else. Exactly, tear walls open, all that type of stuff. Just like the easy lick and stick sensors, our asset tracking solution is also a very low cost, easy to install. So we're actually talking to clients now that have over a million assets that they're trying to track across warehouses and trucks. So we think that indoor asset tracking is going to be a killer use case. Uh, another vertical that expressed a lot of interest is the pharmaceutical industry. Lots of expensive equipment, lots of interesting drugs in various degrees of preparation being transported in special containers all around these campuses. So being able to track where those things are is, is really important. So what's the future of IIT? Maybe you could share some predictions from where you sit about what will happen next. Is it uh, winning the sensor race? Is it the data? Where do you think the, the innovations will come in this industry? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I, th I think it's going to take a little bit of time. Where we are right now is we're going to leverage these low power sensors and we're going to put sensors on everything. And I, we talked about indoor asset tracking. Outdoor asset tracking is right behind it. That once we have countries covered with this low power wide area radio waves, we'll be able to put a simple tag on spot or fluffy and wherever our cats or dogs go, we'll be able to find them with our phone. Eventually, we'll see sensors on a golf ball. So you're no longer hacking through the golf course as I am frequently looking well off of the, uh, the trail for, for, for my golf balls. So I think we're going to see a lot of sensors. I think we're going to see automobiles increasingly being able to talk to one another. I think we're going to see an explosion in wearables. Um, I'm working with a client right now in the UK. Imagine you paying a company um, 19 pounds a month and you've got sensors in your Thomas Pink shirt and your, your nice shoes and, and your sports coat. And all of a sudden, one day you get a push notification. It says, hey, Andrew, you better go to the hospital. We're tracking 100,000 men just like you, your height, your weight, your activity level, your age. Every time one of them has a stroke, their data looks just like yours the day before. What's better than rapid treatment for a stroke? Not having the stroke in the first place. So we're going to, just like we've done with airbags versus sensors in cars, airbags were all about saving your life after the accident. The technology now is all focused on, let's not have an accident in the first place. So it all, th this idea of predictive becomes a theme, whether it be predictive cleaning in bathrooms or whether it become predictive healthcare, predictive uh, automobile transportation. So I think that there's going to be a whole lot of synergy created with all of these things talking together. Increasingly, we're not consumers and employees and citizens. We're simply an individual that traverses through home, work, the places we live, the places we travel. We're, we're just one entity, and we're one entity creating lots of data and consuming lots of data. So I think the future of IoT is bringing all that data together, and I'll come back to really important point, to improve the quality of life. 
Will there be bad things that happen? Yes. Will nefarious people take advantage of it? Yes. But just because there is fraud with payments doesn't mean we've stopped using credit cards or Apple Pay or Google Pay. We figure out a way to contain the nefarious behavior, bake it into the business model and the economics. Why? Because the good far outweighs the bad. Final question, and I'm a big believer in this this whole issue of the data. I talk all the time about my wearable. I've got a Fitbit. I wish I could share that data with my GP in between my visits. And when you talk about my clothing having embedded data in it, I would much rather want to know if I have a health episode coming up than after it. But who owns the data? So I'd like to know that. I'd like my physician to know that. I may not like my health insurer to know that. If all this data is around, some of it is physically on my person because I'm wearing the devices, whether I know it or not, who owns the data and who should own the data? That's a great question. And I think that that will be a debate and a conversation for the next couple decades to come. Because first of all, most people aren't aware of data other than, again, being scared by the nefarious things that are happening and not being educated on all the positive. I think the one simple answer is you own the data. The question is, who is you? When you swipe that credit card, you own that data, but so is the merchant. Your bank owns that data as well because they just funded the transaction. The merchant's bank owns that data because they just received the money for that transaction. And of course, globally, whether it be Visa, MasterCard, Swift, American Express, they own the data. People talk about healthcare and how that's your data, but it's also your doctor's. And your doctor has to fill out forms every year to be certified and get insurance premiums. And so they need to talk about their performance as a doctor. The hospitals need that data to make the entire experience better. So there's a concept called multi-party data ownership. And when you really start to think about multi, when you start to think about data, as much as I do, and yeah, that's pretty boring, you find that I can't think of a single piece of data that doesn't subject itself to multi-party data ownership. It's complex. There's another piece of the conversation that makes it even more interesting, and that is the concept of data models. So thanks to GDPR, any one of us can demand from Facebook that they send us all of our data. And they, they, they will do that. And they'll send you a bunch of files and you look at it and you'll, you'll find it mildly interesting, but you'll say, well, wait a minute though, this doesn't tell me why you keep trying to sell me a Tesla Every time I'm on my smartphone, my laptop, every time I walk by one of these dynamic billboards in London, why does it always make me a candidate for a Tesla? And Facebook will say, I don't have to give you that. That's not your data. That's my data model. That's my IP. So we're going to first, I think, start to have a conversation about multi-party data ownership. I think the next evolution of this conversation is going to be around data versus data models. And I think increasingly we're going to have lots of heated conversation about it because the data is worth something and there's money involved. Okay, my pet topic here, I've got to ask you this before we end the podcast, it's the value exchange. So I believe at the moment, yes, with Facebook, it is a one-way transaction. Do you want to be on Facebook or not? Accept, decline. To your point, there's all this data there on the data modeling and they own you. And, and my favorite expression is if the product is free, the product is me. I think you and I know because we're empowered consumers that our data has value. In fact, I'll put a price on it. My data in London, what I do, where I go, what I buy is worth five to 10,000 pounds a year. 
I'd like a piece of that. I'd like a piece of that in a discount, some cryptocurrency, money off, whatever. But I think there's got to be a value exchange. And the Australian government did a big report on the um, power of both Facebook and Google and the fact that they have ultimate power. Do you think over the next five years, consumers will become more empowered and they'll say, I want an exchange for this. I don't want it to be free, but I see the value in my data and where I do it, go and what I'm doing. But I want to have more of a um, relative relationship where I get some of my value back for this data. I do think it's going to evolve. It may take more than five years. It's very complicated. But for example, I'm working with a company here in the UK that m measures the power coming into each apartment. Mm -hmm. And they put this sensor on your inbound power line to drive efficiency. But they found out that they also could determine when you're running your vacuum cleaner, when you're making your tea, when your refrigerator was kicking on. Then through more machine learning, they figured out that they could predict that your appliances were going to go bad. So they suddenly had all this data and they said, well, who wants the data? Well, the manufacturers of your refrigerator, they would love it. The local repair shops would love that data. The utility company wants that data. And they went out and they started finding buyers for the data. They decided to go back to the tenants and say, we're going to share this data with you. And so suddenly everybody was like, hey, that's great. So they started out with a 70 pound electric bill. The technology brought them down to 60. Now with the revenue share brings them down to 45. And everybody's more than happy to share that data. So I th we, we do think, uh, my partners and I have talked a lot about this. You can find some interesting white papers about this on my website, microshare.io, that this idea of multi-party data ownership and the idea of global data mart. And that data will in fact be shared, exchanged for value. We as consumers, 24 hours a day, we produce data. People do care about your sleep patterns. People do care about your snoring. People do care even when you are traveling or working, how are you functioning as a human being? Where are you looking? What are you buying? What are you consuming? How many calories are you burning? And all of this data put in the right hands with the right purpose can radically improve the quality of life. Along the way, there'll be some bad people that do things and, and we'll have to figure that out along the way. I totally agree. So as this is the Practical Futures podcast, I want to see if we can leave our listeners with three things they can do this week to understand more about the opportunity for the Internet of Things. Three things. So I, I think the first thing is, is just go online to Amazon and look at any of the wireless devices that you can put around your home. Look at the, the, the clever camera-operated doorbells, the camera-operated uh, security systems, the the thermostats, the the intelligent um, uh, outlet devices to control things in your home. It's a start. Yes, you're going to get lots of interesting new apps on your phone. And yeah, it's a little bit harder to figure out how to make it all work than it should be. But it certainly is going to broaden how you think about how much carbon footprint you're creating, how your home is functioning, what kind of power consumption you're doing, what your kids may or may not be doing while you're not around. So there's there's a whole cool benefit to that. The second thing I would encourage people to do, Andrew, you're already doing it. I, I do it with an iWatch. It's really cool to have a Fitbit or, or a, you know, start tracking how many steps you take a day, start tracking your heart rate, your resting heart rate, you know, all those types of things. I think, um, 
that's just, again, gives you firsthand experience. You could then see your own data. That's right. And the third thing I would challenge people to do is start thinking about all the positive uses of data. Start broadening your education of data and ask yourself, whether it be data coming out of that Nest thermostat or data coming out of your new Tesla or data coming out of that Fitbit, ask yourself who really owns this data and begin thinking about it. There's no clear answer. And by the way, there's also no wrong answers as best as I can tell. But it's, it's those kinds of exercises, I think, help people today start taking a step into the future tomorrow. Yeah, as I say, if you want to get digital, you've got to be digital, start playing with it, then it becomes real. And aha, that's why Fitbit, everyone has a Fitbit. Uh, I've really enjoyed our discussion. How can people find out more about you, contact you, find out more about MicroShare? So you can find me on LinkedIn, it's Ronald Rock. You can find out about MicroShare, it's microshare.io. I encourage folks to look through all of the offerings, but also if you want some some good reading, check out the white papers and our thought leadership section. We touch on not just how to get started in the next 30 days, but really trends that we see happening over the next three to five years. Thanks, Ron. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Practical Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at futurist.london. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops at futurist.london. Until next time, this has been the Practical Futurist Podcast.